0: This is the story of God's great love for you. It's not a collection of individual stories from the past. It's one big story that God put together for us to grasp. In the beginning, God created a world filled with beauty and wonder. He placed us at the center of the story, but then sin entered the world and everything changed we were separated from god it doesn't end there from the perfect beginning to the brokenness of sin and then the redemption through jesus god's story continues it's a story of restoration it's filled with hope purpose and a future it's woven through every word every page and every moment of your life
1: good morning everyone well they all went to the cabin and left us behind so we have a treat for you today we are going to be talking about the wedding celebration of the lamb and uh, at weddings normally you have cupcakes or cake wedding cake right so we are going to have wedding cupcakes for you after the service all right and uh, many different flavors Um, and uh, for those of you joining us online who and perhaps you are at a cabin I'm so sorry um, (laughs) that you're out there and you're not here all right but seriously uh, we'll have some cupcakes today just kind of thinking about uh, what it means to be in a wedding. We're uh, in the last of our our season the, the fourth season of our series grasping God's great story. And we've talked about how good it was in the beginning. We talked about how bad it became with sin. We've talked about how Jesus is God's means of redeeming us and putting us back in a right relationship with himself, which I hope you're enjoying, knowing your sins are forgiven, knowing we are going to spend eternity. I hope that brings joy to your heart today, no matter how miserable the news might be in the world. I hope you have joy today. Wow, 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 wow. Anyway, I hope you have joy today. And then the last you know, the last phase we're looking forward to is restoration, being restored, all of creation. Next weekend, we're going to talk about new heaven, new earth, and uh, all that we have to look forward to. Uh, so we're going to jump right into the book of Revelation for the next couple of weekends. And I've asked uh, Pastor Dan if he'd come and read our passage, Revelation 19, 1 through 10, if you're following along. Would you stand, please? And Dan will read.
2: Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder." Of his servants. And again, their voices rang out Praise the Lord! The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen! Praise the Lord! And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. And then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give him honor to him, for the time has come For the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, These are true words that come from God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. And thank you,
1: Dan. You may be seated. You know, I've uh, been standing us um, these last few months when it comes to reading of God's Word for a couple of reasons. One is that used to be the practice many, many, many years ago, and certainly in the ancient church. Um, secondly, it's to remind us that we stand on, on the truth. We, we have a truth we can stand on. And thirdly, it's, it's out of reverence respect for, for God's Word as well. I think it's a good exercise once in a while for us. What do you think? Yeah. All right. I hope you guys are going to be a little more interactive as the message goes on this morning. All right? Because <laughs> we are talking about Revelation. And we're going to look at three concepts um, that, uh, if we can understand them, actually will help us understand um, most of the, the theme behind the book of Revelation. It will help you understand the days we're living in, It'll help us understand the future uh, that is to come. And the three concepts I want to look at is the first one that is mentioned, which is the great prostitute. Uh, In chapter 18, that's your assignment, read chapter 18 later today because it helps you understand 19. In chapter 18, the great prostitute is referred to as Babylon. And then the second concept in the passage of Scripture is the lamb. Okay, the lamb who is obviously the Lord. It's It's his wedding and and then the third concept is the bride, and we're going to look at each one of those uh, together. So we're going to start a little bit heavy this this morning, but we're going to move our way up because um, we got to ask the question: You know, uh, who is this this great prostitute? Who is Babylon that's being referred to here in the passage and other passages in Revelation? And to answer that question, if you go to scholars and say. You know who is this? what is this? Some will tell you well it represents Rome because remember this was originally written to believers uh, that were alive at a time when when Rome ruled and was very oppressive. Um, other scholars say no this is this this prostitute, this Babylon is Jerusalem and her rebellion against God uh, in her period of rebellion. Others say nope, none of those. This is a reference to Um, the future empire, the the world that's coalesced together under the Antichrist that opposes God, that that's what it refers to. So then the question is, well, which one is right? And the answer to that question, I believe, is yes. They're all right. They are all right. And here's what I want to remind you of, okay? Don't think about this as something that talks about, you know, the days of Daniel and, and a long time ago, or something that's remote and and future to us. Remember this, that throughout all of history, since humankind rebelled against God, there have always been great prostitutes or, or Babylons, types of what's being discussed here, whether they've been countries, regional powers, or even nations. The interesting question is, you know, would we consider our country, the United States today, to be a great prostitute and a Babylon in the way that it's being described here in this passage of, of Scripture? You see, when it's being described to us as a, a prostitute or Babylon, you've got to keep in mind a couple of things. For instance, Babylon. Go back to Genesis chapter 11, when all of humanity gathered on the plains of Shinar, if you remember that story. And it says they wanted to build a great city and a tower that reached up into the sky, which was kind of like a fist in God's face. And remember what they said? Let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, we don't need God. We don't need his ways, his truth. We, in and of ourselves, can look after ourselves and live by what we think is right. They did not learn the lesson of the flood. She's called a great prostitute because of of her attitude, all right, because since that moment, how, you know, there have been so many cultures, so many leaders who've had the same attitude, you know, I don't, we don't need God, we don't need his truth. We can live by our own truth, we can live by our own religions, our own philosophies. And so in that sense, like a prostitute, the world becomes, worldliness becomes very seductive and very deceptive. John, in his little epistles, tells us that, you know, don't don't worry about the big antichrist that is to come. And he says there is an antichrist that is to come. But he said, even now, back then, he says, even now there are many small-a antichrists around who oppose Christ, who oppose God, who oppose the truth. And perhaps one of the most important verses in all of this for you and for me is in chapter 18 and verse four, where it says, then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Would you read it with me? Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins, or you'll be punished with her. To me, that's one of the most important verses. When it comes to prophecy, when it comes to the whole book of Revelation, to me, that's one of the most key verses. God is saying, look, don't get yourself entangled up With the system of this world that is opposed to me and my truth. Because what the great prostitute does, the great prostitute comes along, you know, the culture comes along, the leaders of the culture come along, and they say, Look, I promise you power, I promise you identity, I promise you success, I promise you freedom, because whatever you believe to be truth can be your truth just. Fall into my arms. Just embrace this worldview. Just become part of us. And it hangs out there in front of you, in front of your students. And God says, come away from that. Don't get entangled up because it's going to be judged. You now, there's two kinds of judgments. There's, there's judgment right now, and there's a judgment that is to come. I believe that there's coming a day when the whole world will come together in opposition, truly in opposition to God and his people. will be worldwide, led by a charismatic figure. I do believe that's taught in the scriptures and the system, and I certainly see the system being formed in the day that we live in. And God will then finally judge evil and it'll be done and over with. The Bible tells us. But understand that That even now, and and since Genesis 3, judgment has been happening. You know, evil never ultimately wins. It can feel like it's winning sometimes, but history shows us it never ultimately wins. It always comes under judgment. And as somebody has said, when God wants to judge a nation or God wants to judge a people, he gives them over to their own devices. Because... Evil always turns in on itself. Evil always destroys itself. Because it's contrary to God's ways and God's laws and God's structure. So if you go contrary to God's ways, you might be able to get away with it for a while, but eventually, eventually, it will turn in on, on you and consume you and destroy you. I guess the image that came to my mind is, you know, sometimes you read these stories about people who have, you know, their pet, their pet animals and they've never had an issue, and then one day that animal attacks them or attacks their children and, and, and maims them or kills them. That's like evil. It's, you know, like you can have the collar on it, you can have the leash on it and feel like you're in control, and then one day it turns on you, and the thing you never thought it would do, it does to you. And that's judgment. And God says, so stay away from that so you don't suffer the consequences. And what's really interesting, when you look at chapter 18, I think it's like verse 3 and 9, in in like the NIV version, it says, it talks about those who commit adultery with the world system. And it's really interesting because if you keep that in mind and go to James chapter 4, look what James says, and he's speaking to Christians here. He says, you adulterers. Boy, when that letter was read in church, that had to be a little bit insinuating, huh? You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Now, understand we are to befriend the world for the cause of Christ. That's different, though, than than what he's saying. That's different than, than entangling yourself in the ways of the world. I'm going to compromise to be friends with the world. He says, don't you realize uh, that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be what? Faithful to him, right? God wants us to be faithful to him, connected to him. That's the relationship that God desires for us. And so, and so oftentimes in the Bible, you'll find that, that sin is compared to adultery. Do you know why? Because God sees himself as a husband to us. God sees himself as married to us. When you read your Bibles carefully, that imagery is all through the Old and New Testament. And it's very Intimate. That God would want to be so close to us. Like a husband to a wife, like a wife to a husband. You know, and as soon as I say intimate, because we live in such a sexualized culture, that kind of gets in the way. Forget about that part. God's intimacy with us is far superior to that. The intimacy that he wants with us is to actually live in us his spirit to come in us. That's why Paul gets pretty stern with Corinthians and says, you know, when you give yourself over to a prostitute, you are joining your body to one that you don't belong to, and you're taking God with you. Don't do it. So God says, don't compromise. Don't take me into a compromise with the world. It's adultery. It's a sin. Understand that marriage is the most powerful illustration Of our relationship with God. Two become one, and the Father, Son, Spirit are one. And when we come to faith in Christ, we become one, Jesus says in John 17, we become one with God. That's amazing. God doesn't want that adulterated. That's why God views marriage as so sacred and so important, not just in our personal relationships as a husband and a wife, male and female, but but God values marriage because it's, it's a reflection of the relationship, listen, that he wants with us. So if I cheapen it here, what do I do? I'm going to cheapen it there. And God says, don't let that happen. I want to be in relationship with you. Now, let's press this a little bit further, and let's talk a little bit about cohabitation. You weren't expecting that this morning, were you? Otherwise known as living together. And when I was a kid, they'd call it being shacked up. But now we don't use that term because it's too, you know, ugh, All right? So cohabitation sounds more sophisticated. Living together sounds even better. But God, listen, not me, but God calls it a sin. It's called fornication. Living together outside of a marriage commitment, God says is wrong. And we live in a culture where I'm shocked at the number of parents that will encourage their kids to live together. And, and, and the number of adults, especially young adults, but even older adults who will, who will live together. And, and while in that togetherness, you may feel like you're vulnerable because now you, know, you can be naked in front of each other. You're together. Listen, spiritually, you're not being naked with that other person. Because the idea behind living together is I reserve, a, I reserve some individuality. I reserve some independence for myself. That if this relationship doesn't work, and oftentimes you hear, you know, we want to try this to see, we want to test drive this to see if we really want to be together, I'm reserving an option to be able to step out of that. Can you imagine, can you imagine God saying to you and me, hey, listen, I really don't want to be married to you, but how about if we cohabitate together? Let's just live together because I'm not real sure about you, Dale. I want to see if you're, really, if you're really going to stay true and faithful to me, if you're going to be the kind of person I want you to be and live the way I want you to live. And maybe after 10 years or so, then, then you know, we'll really, get, we'll really get close. You know, if God said that to you, to you and to me, none of us would ever make it. Because God knows we're going to be unfaithful. God knows we're going to fail. God knows we're not going to be the perfect partner. We're not even going to come close to the, you know, anywhere near to that. And yet God says, I still want to be married to you, and I will be faithful to you. Read the book of Hosea, and you'll understand this better in the Old Testament. And I'm going to be faithful to you no matter how unfaithful you are to me. I'm thankful for a God like that, aren't you? He says, I already know what you're like. You know, the Bible says, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God chooses to be faithful to us. That's why why outside of sin on the human level, God says anything, I'd say outside of marriage, anything on the human level is sin. Because it speaks to his relationship with us. He doesn't want that, he doesn't want that corrupted. We've talked about adult, um, adultery. We've talked about cohabitation. Let's push it a little bit more. Let's talk about flirtation. You know, I've heard people, Christian men in particular, say it's okay to look as long as you don't touch. You ever heard that before? Yeah. It's okay to look as long as you don't touch. It's okay to flirt as long as whatever. I want you to imagine with me for a moment a married couple. Husband and wife. And um, the husband goes across the street and begins a friendship with another woman. And it's like every night he's over there for a few hours and they'll eat a meal together. Um, They share, they laugh. He shares his dreams, his hopes, his fears, his concerns. He leaves his poor wife at home. And then he decides to take a vacation with this woman across the street. And they go on an around the world vacation. And he comes back, and his wife's waiting for him. And his wife says to him, What are you doing? And it annoys him, it irritates him. And he says, Listen, we're still legally married. You still have my last name, I still pay the mortgage. You still have access to our joint checking account. And she looks at him and she says, yes, I know I have all that, but I don't have your heart. That's what I want. And that's what God wants. He wants our heart. So he doesn't want us committing adultery to the culture. He wants our heart. He doesn't want us cohabitating with the culture. He doesn't want us cohabitating with him. He wants our heart. He doesn't want us flirting with the culture, flirting with sin, He wants our heart. So I have a question I'll ask you, I've I've, I've asked myself. Probably a question we should probably ask ourselves at least once a week. Who has your heart? Who owns your heart today? Who has title to your heart? Whose arms are you in? Does your career have your heart? Does sex have your heart? Does money have your heart? Does politics have your heart? Kind of makes me want to gag when I say that, doesn't it? But I'm surprised by how many Christians it seems like politics owns their heart. Listen, do worries, fears, and anxiety own your heart? How do I know what owns my heart? a spiritual leader from many, many, many years ago put it this way. And and this illustration, um, I don't know how many of you are ever at a bus stop, so this may feel a little odd, but he says, he says, you know who owns your heart by where your mind goes when you're standing at the bus stop waiting and there's nothing else to do. Wherever your mind wanders, that's that's probably what owns your heart. How many of you uh, who, who are married, how many of you remember when you fell in love with your spouse? You better raise your hand if you're married and she's or he's here. All right? Remember that? Remember how, Remember how early on she or he was all you could think about? I mean, it was so hard to focus on anything. And when you did have an opportunity <clears throat> and some free time, man, your mind went right to her, right to him. Where does your mind go these days? God says, I want your mind in your free time to go to me. I want it to be hard for you to focus on anything else because your mind drifts to me. Who has your heart? Who has your mind? All right, let's, let's move up a notch. We're going to lighten it up a little bit, okay? Some of you are thinking, man, those cupcakes better be good. But anyway, <laughs> let's talk about the lamb, okay? So obviously, the lamb uh, represents Jesus. Now, now, why is he called the lamb? Why is it the, the, the lamb's marriage celebration? Why doesn't he just say the The Lord's marriage celebration. Well, in order for him to be our husband, okay, he has to pay a a price, a bridal price, so to speak, for you and me. And the price that Christ had to pay was with his life. He had to die on the cross for our sins in order for us to have a relationship with him. That's what he did for you and for me. And because he paid that price for us, he now we now can be in relationship with him. But the best way to understand this is actually go back to an incident in John chapter 2. We looked at it when we were in our series last, last year in the Gospel of John. Jesus, his mother Mary, and disciples go to a place called Cana for a wedding. And everything is going really well at the wedding until they run out of wine. And we said, if you remember that message... We said that in those days, the wine, real wine, not fake wine, the real wine represented joy, the joy of the celebration. So in essence, what ha- was happening here is they have the potential in this wedding of, of being very embarrassing to the, the groom and the bride and their families of running out of joy, running out of wine. So, Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him. They must have been friends of family or something. And says to him, basically, do something about this. Here's what it says in John chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, she says, do something about this. And Jesus answers her and says, dear woman, which is not rude. In that day, the words they use are, are kind. He Says, dear woman, that's not our problem. Then he says, Jesus replied, my time or hour has not yet come. So time and hour always refers to the death of Jesus. So it's like this really weird answer to this question that Mary has, or this command, really. They've run out of joy. Please make some joy for everybody. And then he says that. And I can just imagine her kind of shrugging her shoulders and looking at the other servants and just simply saying, I don't know, he does that sometimes. (laughs) Do as he tells you. Proud Jewish mom. Do as he tells you, and and, and Jesus does. He takes the six clay jars of water, and he causes them to become the most amazing wine that's ever been tasted at a wedding celebration. Now, what is that all about? Keller, commenting on this passage, I think really sums it up well. Basically he says what's happening here is Jesus is in essence saying to his mother, listen, before I, Jesus, before I can drink the cup of joy, before you, us, can drink the cup of joy, I, Jesus, must first drink the cup of suffering. Remember when Jesus is in the garden? Remember what he says to his father in his prayer? He says, my father, if it is possible, let this what? Cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And then a couple verses later, Jesus says, My father, if this what cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. See, what Jesus did is he drank the cup of suffering that you and I should have drink. He paid the price for us. He died our death for us. Why? So he could in turn offer us a cup of joy. And When I was thinking about joy, I thought about that passage in Hebrews 12, verse 2, where it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, I hope you believe that, who for the joy, that's just so weird, isn't it? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Who could possibly Look at the cross as a as a place of joy. It goes on, it says, despising the he says, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus despised the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. And what was the joy? You and me. You and me. That was his joy. That was his joy. The joy of putting us into right relationship with the Father, the joy of becoming our our husband, so to speak, our Lord, our Savior, our brother. So many ways to speak about him. Doesn't that make you want to fall into his arms? Yes, it's, it's... as uh, Westerners, we have a, especially as men, we have a hard time with this. The women are all with me on this. I know that. Some of you guys are just like falling into his arms, married to Jesus. But you got get past, You got to get past what he's really talking about. It's intimacy. It's intimacy. And that brings us to the last thought. You've got, you've got the great prostitute Babylon. We got past that. You've got the Lamb, all right, the Lord who who has made it possible for us to now have joy and finally have the bride that's you and me you know the bride is the church but the church is made up of individuals of you and me we are the together and individually the bride of christ you know there's some wonderful benefits of being the bride of christ there are some just wonderful benefits This is where I hope you get happy, and this is where I hope that cupcake is going to to be a blessing to you as you celebrate what is yours. Let's look at some of the benefits. The first benefit of being the bride of Christ is redemption and salvation. Folks, in Christ, you have been saved. You have been redeemed. You've been bought back into a right relationship with God ephesians one seven says that we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of god 's grace. God sees you and me today as though we had never sinned i didn 't share this in the last service it just I guess it comes to mind this morning when I was preparing this message and knowing I was going to call the enemy out something I knew something about about a week ago, I thought, man, I know there's going to be some warfare because of this. And I want to tell you what, yesterday was, part of Friday and yesterday were really hard days for me. I was what's called a (laughs) J-E-R-K for a period of time. We had a little thing at, had to be fixed, and I didn't fix it the right way, and man, I don't know where it all came from, but I I was just, I was not a good person to be around, I felt so bad, and I hate it when it happens on Saturday, because Sunday's coming, (laughs) right, and it's like, I gotta repent, you know, because my attitude is just bad, and I said things I wish I hadn't said, and on and on, and you know, in my my quiet time this morning, when I was just kind of sorting through that, and Cause I had such a good prayer time yesterday. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I can have a great prayer time and be a monster two hours later. And I just, I just said, Lord, I just—it was like God, don't you just get tired of me? Because I really get tired of myself. And you know, and and the way I'm wired, it's like, what do I need to go and do and make this right? You know, do I need to crawl across the? The courtyard on broken glass. I mean, what do I need? It's kind of Martin Luther, right? What do I need to do? And just just to remind myself that even when I was being a J-E-R-K, God saw me as perfectly righteous. As though I had never been one. Because of what Christ did for me. God has to see me and he has to see you that way because what Christ has done for us. And that's what causes us then to humble ourselves and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And to know that we're accepted and to know that we are always loved by Him. Anybody else been to J-E-R-K recently? Am I alone? Wow, a lot of jerks in this place. But anyway, aren't you glad that God shows grace? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you're redeemed and saved? All right, let's move on. Number two, intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. Because what Christ has done for us, like in a marriage, we have intimacy with him. I love this. Ephesians 1.6 in, in the NASB, I think it is. Jesus has blessed us or made us. And I love this term, acceptable in the beloved. Acceptable in the beloved. Just, I just love how that sounds. I have been made by Christ acceptable in the beloved. Number 3. Spiritual nourishment and growth. God God wants to help us he wants to nourish us and grow us. If you want to understand this, go back and read Ephesians 5, because in Ephesians 5, Paul takes human marriage how it's supposed to be, in order to understand our spiritual marriage with, with, with Christ. And he talks about how you know husbands need to take care of the wives like Christ did for the church. And you know, wives submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. In other words, what he's saying there is, as your husband treats you like Christ, then then let him lead. But husbands, I, I remind you, I warn you. That means you have to treat her like Christ did. Otherwise, you have no right to say, follow my leading. Spiritual nourishment, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthen the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Here, I'm going to give you the test. Here is the test for somebody who's, who's growing in their faith. They're always filled with thankfulness. You can tell somebody, you can tell when somebody's really walking with God when they're growing in the Lord because they just overflow with thankfulness all the time because they're always so thankful for what God has done and God is doing in their lives. All right? Number four, provision and care. Matthew chapter 6. He will take care of our needs, and our needs and our wants are not always the same thing, but he'll look after our needs. Number five. Boy, it's a big deal today. Identity and purpose. He gives us an identity. We're I'm his child. You're his child. He gives us a purpose. He gives us direction for our lives. And then number six, he gives us a future and he gives us a hope. Amen. Isn't it awesome to belong to Jesus? Isn't it awesome to belong to God? I want us to read just that part of that passage that Dan read for us, Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read it, and then we're going to close with a song. And then Pastor Kyle will come up. Revelation 19, would you read it aloud with me? Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for who he is. What he's done to make us right with you. Lord, I pray that we would surrender ourselves. No, that we would fall into your arms. That we would come out and away from this world and its lies and its deceptions and its deceits. God, we don't want to commit spiritual adultery. God, we don't want to cohabit. We want to fall in your arms. We want you to be our husband. We want you, Lord, to be the master of our lives. We We trust you. We love you. And someday, Lord, we're going to be in that crowd that was mentioned in Revelation chapter 19. We're going to be there standing before you with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are going to sing hallelujah. Praise his name.